Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Cut off for quiet. We have a lot of rules about coffee, don't we? Yes. No. Yes. As you stand with me this morning, turn your Bibles to John chapter 1 and go down to verse 18. John 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Well, I pray you would anoint these lips of clay this morning. Father, let your word go out and do that convicting work, that encouraging work, that sanctifying work in every heart that's represented here this morning. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Psychologist Milton Rokich wrote a book called The Three Christ of Ypsilanti. He described his attempts to treat three patients at a psychiatric hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan, who suffered from delusions of grandeur. Each believed he was unique among humankind, that he had been called to save the world. In fact, each one believed that they were the Messiah. They displayed full-blown cases of grandiosity in its purest form. Rokic found it difficult to break through and to help the patients accept the truth about their identity. So he decided to put the three into a little community to see if rubbing against people who also claimed to be the Messiah might somehow dent their delusion. It was kind of a messianic 12-step recovery group. Now, this led to some interesting conversations. For example, one would claim, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. I've been sent here to save the earth. Rokich would ask, well, how do you know that? The reply would be, God told me. But then one of the other two patients would counter, I never told you any such thing. 
Well, this morning we're going to see that John the Baptist was under no delusion about whether he was the Christ or not. And in that, John gives us a great example. When asked, who are you, John replies, I am not the Christ. This is where identity and vitality is found when I realize that I am not the Christ. Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. We pick up here in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now this verse is clearly saying that no one has ever seen God. In Exodus 33.20 we read that God says, You cannot see my face and live. But in Exodus 24 it says, They saw God and they ate and drank. So how can John claim that no one has ever seen God when the Old Testament text indicates that people did on occasion see God? Well, the solution is simple. If the people of the Old Testament were seeing God, the Almighty God, but Jesus says in John 6:46 that no one has ever seen the Father, then they were seeing God Almighty, but not the Father. It was someone else in the Godhead. I suggest they were seeing the Word before He became incarnate. In other words, they were seeing Jesus. Also, where it reads, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, the actual rendering of the Greek New Testament would be the only begotten God. In fact, the Jewish New Testament renders it like this. The only unique Son who is identical with God has declared Him. You see, we couldn't see God because God is a spirit. So Jesus came in human flesh so that we could see God. A few years ago, there was a song out called, What If God Were One of Us? This was the chorus. What if God were one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? The thing is, God did become one of us. And while Jesus is certainly not a slob, He identifies with slobs. But instead of trying to make his way home, he left his home so that we could be there with him one day. Now please notice at the end of the verse, the Greek word translated declared is exegemi, from which we get our English word exegesis, which means to expound. Jesus expounded on the Father because he had seen the Father. So too with us. We are to expound on Jesus because we have seen Jesus. Now the study of Bible interpretation is called hermeneutics. Therefore, the key to all Bible hermeneutics is really hermeneutics. Whether a person is teaching a Sunday school class, preaching to thousands, or serving on a mission field, just expound upon Christ. Look for him in every passage and in every page of scripture. Focus on Jesus and you will behold the Father because it really is all about him. Look at verse 19 with me. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. When John uses the term the Jews, which he does some 70 times through this gospel, he's not making a racial or a religious distinction, 
For virtually all the people in the Gospels were Jews. No, when he speaks of the Jews, he is speaking of the Sanhedrin, who were the equivalent of our Supreme Court, comprised of the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And in verse 19, they asked him one simple question. Who are you? Now, one thing I love about John is, even though Jesus said he was the greatest man ever born among women, John stayed amazingly humble. And that can be hard to do if you are famous. Tom Selleck once said, Whenever I get full of myself, I remember that nice couple who approached me with a camera on the streets of Honolulu one day. When I struck a pose for them, the man said, No, no, we want you to take a picture of us. Now John could have truthfully replied, I'm the miraculous son of Elizabeth and Zechariah. I am a priest and I'm a prophet chosen by God to be the forerunner of the Messiah. But he didn't, did he? He simply said, instead of me telling you who I am, let me tell you who I am not. I am not the Christ. Now put yourself in John's sandals. People are flocking to him. His popularity is soaring at this point. He could have said, I am not the Christ, but I guess you could say I'm the next best thing. But he didn't. What was John's response? He did not deny but confess, I am not the Christ. This is a very liberating truth for every one of us. I am not the Christ. Life will begin when we truly believe that. Wait a minute, Pastor Bill. I know that I'm not the Christ. Really? When we realize that only Jesus is the Christ, we must believe what he said. When he promised that without me, you can do nothing in an eternal and significant sense. Do we believe that? If we understand that we are not the Christ and truly believe it, we will spend a significant time of our life in prayer and meditation, realizing without the guidance of God's Spirit and the illumination of His Word, we truly can do nothing. We will find our real identities when, like John the Baptist, we realize we are not the Christ. But if you go to your job thinking that you can pull it off in your own ability, if you work on your marriage thinking you can make it through because of your own insight, if you raise your kids thinking you can just draw upon your own experiences, no matter what your mouth says, your life is saying, I am the Christ. Life starts when we put away our can-do attitude and realize we truly can't do nothing apart from Christ. Look at verse 21 with me. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? They, out, they now ask John if he is Elijah. Now the book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. The last chapter of that book is chapter 4, and the last verses of that chapter are verses 5 and 6, which read this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the children to the fathers, and the hearts of the fathers to the children, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. 
Now at this time in Jewish history, the nation is on its back. When Paul said, when the fullness of time finally has come, he meant that. They have been under the bondage of Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, and even now they are under bondage to the Romans. They are in bondage under Gentile oppressors, as God said they would, if they forsook him. Well, they did, and God did. Now, Elijah was a prophet during one of the worst times in Israel's history under King Ahab. He was sent to warn the people that if they did not repent, the next event would be God's judgment. And now God is telling them, the next time I send you a prophet like Elijah, just know if you don't heed him, once again judgment is going to come. And John the Baptist has come in the spirit of Elijah. And what did the angel Gabriel say to John's father Zacharias? He said, John will go in the spirit and the power of Elijah. John dressed like Elijah. He ate like Elijah. And just like Elijah himself, he separated himself from the corruption of the world to call the people out to true repentance. Okay, so why then did John say that he was not Elijah? Because John was not physically and literally Elijah. You see, the belief of that time was was that there would be a reappearance of Elijah who was caught up into glory in a chariot of fire some 800 years prior. And even today, many Jewish people leave an empty seat at their table for Elijah when they celebrate the Passover. Now, John was only in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So although John was very much like Elijah, he was distinguishing himself from whom they thought Elijah would be when he came on the scene. Then they asked him, are you that prophet? Now, who is this speaking of? They had already asked, are you the Christ? Now they ask, are you the prophet? We just learned this was the same person, so why would they ask that? Because they did not understand that in Deuteronomy 18, the prophet was actually going to be the Messiah. Let me show you this long-anticipated person they were talking about. Now, as Israel entered the land, there were a number of corrupt and vile ways that the Canaanites had for finding the will of God. They would use mystical and evil abilities to communicate with the beyond. Now, this was the early version of the psychic hotline, which as a side note, I have never understood. I mean, people call these clowns for things like the winning lottery numbers. But think about it. They charge you a dollar a minute to talk to them. But if they were really psychic, why don't they just win the lottery and then they could help you for free? These are the types of things I think about. (laughs) But anyway, God forbids the Jews to engage in these types of things. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, it says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not follow the abominations of the other nations. Then in verse 13 it says, You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. Now this is who the pagans listen to, but now listen in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Moses says, God will raise up a prophet like me, and him you shall listen to. Now, if you've ever read that, Israel would say to Moses, God, you're too holy for us to approach. Moses, would you approach God 
on our behalf. And so Moses would stand in the middle between Israel and God as the mediator. And God says, someday I'm going to raise up a man just like Moses. He will stand between the nation and me. He will be the word made flesh to the nation. And so to sum up, there was, there was no consensus in first century Judaism about the precise identity of who the prophet was. Some believe that he was Elijah. Some believe that he was possibly Jeremiah or one of the other prophets who would be resurrected. While others saw him as being the Messiah himself. But John denied being any of these people. Verse 23, please. He said, I am the one. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John said, you want to know who I am? I'm just the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Basically, what John is saying is, is I have been sent for two things as a voice to warn you. The impending judgment to come and the possibility of salvation. Now, John's words reminds me of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 24. Paul was also sent to make straight the path of the Lord. Now, the background of this is Paul has been taken into custody for his own safety because some Jews had vowed to neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 23. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide or visit him. After some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about self-righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Now as a preacher, I can tell you this is a marvelous three-point outline. Consider its procession. One, righteousness, two, self-control, and three, the judgment to come. Now, if you think about Paul's audience at this time, this is a strategic outline. Because Felix and Drusilla were unrighteous, they had no self-control, and they were both facing the judgment to come. Now, I'm sure this royal couple could not have expected to have heard this sort of thing. I'm sure it was extremely rare for a prisoner to come in with an organized sermon outline. They were probably expecting to hear something about a dissertation contrasting Christian and Judaic thought systems. Instead, this prisoner comes in with gospel guns blazing. Point one, righteousness. That passed without much incident. The listeners must have breathed a sigh of relief. I mean, who is going to argue that righteousness is not a good thing? But then point two is introduced. The topic, self-control. Now these two were living lives of serial matrimony and unbridled consumption. They must have had a few raw nerves jangled at this point. And by the end of point two, we can probably imagine them gritting their teeth and perhaps nervously fidgeting in their seats. And then we are given point number three, the judgment to come. Point one raised the spiritual issue. Point two took aim and zoomed in on target. And point three fired. At the beginning of this meeting, Felix and Drusilla were sitting behind the judge's bench. But now I'm sure it probably felt more like they were sitting at the defendant's table 
a table that the Apostle Paul had turned on them. Paul had paved a road to the hearts of his listeners that day. So what does it mean to pave the road to somebody's heart in our lives this morning? Albert Barnes in his commentary remarks on this verse, he writes, The idea is taken from the practice of Eastern monarchs who, whenever they entered on a journey or an expedition, especially through a barren and unfrequented or inhospitable country, sent forerunners before them to prepare the way. To do this, it was necessary for them to provide supplies, to make bridges, find fording places over the streams, to level hills and construct causeways over valleys, or fill them up and to make a way through the forest which might lie in their intended line of march. When I read that, it made me think we all have the same responsibility. The only difference is we do what we can to prepare the highway of another person's heart so the king can come through. Now how do we do that? By doing things like witnessing and kind deeds and just living out an attractive Christian life before them. You may be thinking this morning, I can't do that. I'm not a preacher. I'm not an evangelist. I'm just an ordinary Christian. What possible impact could someone like me have? I've always appreciated and admired the ministry of C.H. Spurgeon. He's been called the Prince of Preachers, whose preaching took England by storm during the 1800s. Now, as a teenager, Spurgeon was an unbeliever. He was planning to become a farmer when instead he decided to study Latin and Greek. He really didn't know where his career was heading. At his school in Newmarket, his life was impacted by one particular individual. But it wasn't a professor, neither was it a classmate or a friend. Spurgeon had his life impacted by the school's cook, an elderly woman named Mary King. She invited him to attend her church one day, and that led to many conversations with her about faith, eventually setting him on the path to salvation. Years later, he learned of Mary King's retirement and supplemented her own income from his pockets. Here's what that story says to me. If a cook from the kitchen can prepare the path for the greatest preacher of the century, what does that imply that God might do through any one of us? Now, I think we rarely recognize the full extent to which, God, to which God has used common, ordinary human beings who have been available to him for his greatest purposes. Because many millions of people, including me, owe Mary King a debt of gratitude because of Spurgeon's contribution to their faith. If such power is in Mary King's hands, it is in ours as well. You know, it's really not difficult to encourage, inspire, and edify another human being. You can do it today. Just using your cell phone, an email, a text, or even just your voice. Who knows the impact that might have on someone sitting right here this very morning? Verse 24, please. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. 
Now, when John was baptizing there in the Jordan River, there hasn't been this much spiritual excitement in Israel for over 400 years. Thus, when John burst on the scene baptizing Jews, this caused a ripple that could have been felt all the way back to the Sanhedrin. You see, there were two baptisms that the Jews recognized. One had to do with cleansing. Like if you touched a dead body or after a woman's menstrual cycle, they would go through a baptismal. It was called a mikvah. They would go and immerse themselves in the water and then be cleansed. The other baptism was if you were a Gentile and you said, I want to worship the true and the living God. The Jews would say, okay, if you are a male, you have to be circumcised. You have to be instructed in the law and you have to go through a baptism. And if you go through this, you will have a brand new start. It was a sign or a renunciation of all of their past life. They would give you a new name, and then you would be part of the community. Listen to how J.B. Lightfoot describes this. As soon as he grows whole from the wound of circumcision, they bring him to baptism, and, bring, and being in the water, they again instruct him in the commands of the law. After being heard, he plunges himself in the water and comes up, and behold, he is an Israelite in all things. Please notice that the interesting thing is, in the Jewish proselyte baptism, the person would baptize themselves. But John is out there baptizing other Jews for the remission of their sins. This is part of what perplexed the Jewish leaders because the baptism they knew was when an outsider wanted to become an insider. But John is baptizing Jews who in their minds are already insiders. What was John saying? You Jews are really outsiders until you come and repent of your sins. Now being American Christians, we can hardly imagine the shock value of John's words to that Jewish audience. I am sure it was a tough crowd around the baptismal spot. But even then, I bet if John also accidentally went under when baptizing, I doubt anybody would have the nerve to video it and put it on Facebook. If you weren't here for that, just ask one of our old timers. I'm sure they would take some kind of perverse delight in explaining it to you. But please take note of these two questions. You guys are a little slow. That the Jews... Yeah. That the Jews asked John. First one, verse 19, who are you? And secondly, verse 25, why are you baptizing? Or we could say, who are you and why do you do the things that you do? These are the questions I'd like for you to think about this morning. Can you answer them concerning yourself? Who are you and why do you do the things that you do? Those are two great questions we should always be asking ourselves. Look at verse 27. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. John says, the one coming after me is preferred over me, and I'm not even, un I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandal strap. And you may not realize this, but that is actually a claim to the deity of Christ. In the Jewish culture, if a slave had to indenture himself out to his master for seven years because of bankruptcy, in Jewish tradition, you had to do everything the master told you to do except one thing. 
If he asked you to take off his sandals and wash his feet, you didn't have to do it. Why? Because that master was not worthy of that. You see, if the slave had to touch his dirty feet, it would bring him into ceremonial defilement, not to mention the whole corn chip thing. And so to be obedient to the master meant that he had to refuse the word of God. And no master was worthy of superintending the very law of God. So if a human being tried to make you violate the Levitical law, you did not have to do it. No man is worthy of that. But John turns this on its head and says exactly the opposite. I'm not even worthy to take his shoes off because this is not merely just a man, but God in the flesh. One last comment will be done. In verse 28, we are told these things were done in Bethabara. Now, Bethabara was the place where Joshua led Israel across the Jordan River. It was the place where the entire nation was, in a sense, baptized. And so it's interesting that John chose this spot, the place of crossing, as the place to baptize. Bethabara was located in the rough, rocky region surrounding the Dead Sea. When I read that, I thought, you know, sometimes, like John, that's where we are called to witness as well. Never think you must wait until your life is perfect, your walk is pure, or your circumstances are plush before you can talk about Christ. Sometimes we witness most effectively when we share from our desert experiences with a voice that cries out from the wilderness. Father, I pray for everybody here this morning. Lord, only you know where we are. And I pray, Lord, you would take your word today by your Holy Spirit. Let it penetrate every heart. Reveal to us, Lord, who we truly are, not who we think we are or who we think others think we are. Reveal to us who we are. For none of us here, Lord, are neither worthy to even unloose your sandal strap. And yet you died for us and you love us. That is the amazing love Roy sang about. Ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Being the first Sunday of the month, we're having communion. Ask Elder Dave and Pastor John to come up.